Hey everyone, uh, before this episode gets rolling, I had some upload issues the last couple of weeks, so there's actually going to be two episodes this week, back to back, boom, boom, check them out. I'm really excited to get one of these interviews up where you folks can hear it, uh, so stay tuned for that. There'll be an update tomorrow as well. Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. I'm Strangely. This is the podcast. The friends will be along in a few moments. Comic-Con is going on this week, and Tom Cruise learned how to fly fighter jets, like, for real. My friend who's in the Air Force was actually also impressed. So it's not just from a layman's perspective. When is Tom Cruise actually going to go to space? Like, he wants to go to space. I think he should Mission Impossible in space. I don't know how that would work. But sorry. Anyway, now I've commented on something in the current cultural zeitgeist. Let us speak of it no more. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less. Including these 11. Who? Who imposed this rule? Magic Words, The Extraordinary Life of Alan Moore, by Lance Parkin. Right from the sarcastic blurbs on the cover provided by Moore himself, this biography is something special. For someone who is perceived as a grumpy recluse, this Northampton author jumps to convivial life in this mostly glowing portrait. From his Olympian battles with publishers to his tiny zine-printing endeavors, the book takes the reader through Moore's career, pointing out some running themes along the way. I think I was most charmed to learn that Moore has no dark backstory. There is no moment in his childhood where he was trapped in a well with a pile of nude Greek statues or struck by lightning while holding a Tijuana Bible. Moore just woke up one morning and decided to be... weird. I love that about him. So many of us are craving a cool origin story, and yet the world is painfully lacking in radioactive spiders and moribund wizard uncles. Moore is leaving proof that you need nobody's permission to grow up into a weird man with a huge beard who worships a snake. This is my chat with a fellow Morgan Block building artist named Mary Jo Martini. She is a metal worker who makes jewelry. She's actually sort of one of my nemeses here in the building because I'll be up here trying to record a podcast and I'll hear her grinding away on one of her bench grinders making a piece of metalwork. And I'm mostly kidding. I, I think it's so cool that I get to be a part of this building where all of these different artists are making their cool stuff. So I hope you enjoy my chat with Mary Jo Martini. sitting here with Mary Jo Martini, who is another one of the artists in the Morgan Block building where my studio is located. And Mary Jo makes jewelry and sells soap. And there's something happening with candles. I, I really don't know anything about what you do. I know you sometimes watch like Thor movies or something down there. <laughs> so we'll start with that, I guess. That combination in itself, Thor, candles, soap, I, I don't know. There's a lot to be said about that right there. Right. <laughs> so uh, you your main thing is making jewelry, though. Is that correct? I Yes. Uh, I've been making jewelry, goodness, gosh, since like 1999, maybe, and uh, silversmithing since 2004, uh, candle making, soap making since 2017. 
So the the I I mentioned the candles because on Tuesday evenings you're here like having like open office hours or whatever where like people could come up and buy your stuff and I always know it's Tuesday because I can smell that amazing. It smell. worked. I lured you up through my smells and scents. That's what it's all about. I got to lure people up somehow. Otherwise, they won't walk up those really steep, innocuous stairs. I mean, they're just, whew. It, it is quite a hike. Like, the the angle of attack on the stairs in this building. It's a visual giant. I mean, yeah. looking at it, it's, it's just a tremendous feat. It's like climbing Mount Rainier and Everest all in one full <laughs> swoop. Was well, it's so funny what people thought was like fine a hundred or two hundred or five hundred years ago. Like whenever I go over to Edinburgh, the the stairs that are just like a common sidewalk of stairs are dangerous. They're downright dangerous. Right, right. No, th- this is like uh, this is definitely a, a a tremendous feat that people feel like they accomplish when they come up the stairs. There's a lot of heavy breathing at the top when they come into my studio. It's like. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I just did that. I'm like, well, you did it. It's it it's such a like I uh I remember a friend of mine who was really into fitness when we were like teenagers. Uh he showed me these pictures. He had this whole collection of pictures um of ancient Greek urns cuz he wanted to get fit like the Greeks. <laughs> and all these guys like their arms and their chests and everything are pretty tiny. And then they have massive legs. Yeah. And like everybody back then did. Yeah. Like just because you're walking everywhere all the time. That and lifting very heavy things and walking with heavy things. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the stories of the guys on the Yukon Trail who are moving like 300, 400 pounds of gear on foot. You know, like they would move like 10 miles a day by moving everything 100 feet, going back, moving more, going back, like back and forth. I can't imagine. Goodness, those were the days. So <laughs> we were way off track, but that's how this podcast <laughs> is sometimes. So you, you, you're you one of the noisier studios in here. I make a lot of fucking noise. Can I curse on of here? Of course. You, it's, yes. the, it's the internet. I curse a lot and I make noise in my studio. So yes, I make banging noises, hammering noises. I drop a lot of heavy things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what got you into making jewelry? You know, um, I could go on forever talking about the logic behind becoming a metalsmith or a silversmith. Uh But ultimately, it's about independence and being able to do your own thing under your own terms, even though I don't exactly quite do that quite yet. Mm -hmm. Um, Partially in my life, maybe. But... uh, you know, I, I really, uh, I, I like tools. Mm-hmm. I like working with tools. I think silversmithing and working with metals, um, there's so many different things that you can do with it. I can do jewelry. I can mm-hmm. do, I can weld. I can love to get into blacksmithing. So just metal in itself and what you can do with metal. Um, it's got endless possibilities. It's, it's also one of the older human pastimes like making things out of metal is i mean that's that was the official leaving of the stone age as we started making things out of metal absolutely yeah do you do you draw on that historical tradition when you're making things you know it's funny i never felt like i really belonged to this time frame i mean like walking into your studio and your Mm -hmm. space here you're walking you're looking at all the different 
elements that you have in your studio and it's bits and pieces of history. It's about the design aspect of years gone by and that stuff really intrigues me. I love like vintage design and Mm -hmm. what they did centuries ago. I just think it's fascinating at what people could come up with, with limited means of resources. They made, they made it happen. And I think that, you know, being in this building really draws out that inspiration of years gone by. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, this building in itself is an architectural feat. I mean, you think about like the Douglas fir that they extracted from the earth and then, you know, got it to be a, a building that's been alive since 1892 and the design, like the Victorian Italian, I don't know if yeah. you know that that's what it was, but it's back in the day. That's what they did. It's all from Italy and like the design concepts and mm-hmm. all the like finials and the, um, I don't know what you want to call it, the eaves and how they design like the, the trim work around mm-hmm. the building. It's all from good old Italy. It's so. it, the, the building reminds me more of some of the things I've seen in Europe, like yeah. even the height of the ceilings yeah. in here, which are not the best for recording. Sorry, everybody. But the, the fact that we have these 10, 11 foot ceilings is more like a lot of the buildings that I see over in Europe. And I'm not entirely sure what the thinking was, but I like it. I, it, it almost makes a lot of the stuff, the other stuff around here feel so small. Absolutely. Yeah. It's grand. It's just grand. Yeah. Which at the time in the, the 1880s, when I think this was built in the 1880s, 1892, 1892. So oh, I, was, no. I was off a little bit, but, uh, but back in that time, a building, even with ceilings this high, that was something new. Like you look at a lot of the other extant buildings from that era around Whatcom County and they have like five foot, five inch doorways. And like the ceilings are really low because people were just kind of, it was like bare minimum shelter you gotta heat a space yeah i mean this building doesn't have heat you know it didn't have heat Uh so they were filling it up with i mean they were yeah it's 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 pretty amazing i I, the reason why i love bringing people up to my space and not only my space but the building in itself is Mm -hmm. that i want them to witness this i mean where else are you don't get to see this kind of design work anywhere no. really i i absolutely agree i want to put a plexiglass window in the ceiling like out in the hallway so yeah. people can see the beams yeah i don't know if you've gone up in the attic here but like the beams are like two by tens yeah they're where huge people would use two by fours now it's yeah. just they're it's huge and this this building is still upright yeah. like i mean yeah it's supported on the left and the right but i mean the, everything about it is still relatively intact. Yeah. With slight modifications. I'm. It's almost disappointing to think that there were modifications on this building. I would love to have it restored back to the way it was. It would be incredible. Just seeing like the sort of minimal work to do that uh, up the street in that. Uh, what is the other building? The Sycamore. This is that where uh, Black Cat. Black Cat. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. The fact that they've warmed up. They. Uh, they didn't paint over like all the banisters and everything. It's just, it's so warm. It's a huge space, but it has such warmth. It does. In a way that, you know, corporate 
huge spaces have. I mean, that was probably a big shopping, like little department store to Mm -hmm. some, at some point maybe. Yeah, or a hotel or... Or both or... Yeah, it's... It's the the different uses that spaces get put to over the years is such an amazing thing too. Like the fact that the Bellingham Food Co-op used to be down <laughs> in the basement of this building, or this, you know, downstairs. This building has been uh, through some very interesting uh, experiences, to say the least. Uh-huh. I mean, it's had many interesting people pass through this space. It still amazes me that I get to walk through this building in the same space that probably. Royalty, who knows? Mm-hmm. Who knows the people that have been in this space and their past lives, and it's just their stories. It's just, uh, it's inspiring. I I love that historical inspiration in this neighborhood because there's all those plaques. You know, Fairhaven yeah. Historical Society has the like, this is where a dead man was displayed in 1862, <laughs> and uh, this is where the. the they had a boat that they used as the city jail for a while and just like all that kind of like I love that sort of historical context even though you know white settlement in this area is less than 150 200 years old think about that there's that still that feeling of history yeah I mean when you're walking down the street and you see the plaque you almost stop and you're like holy shit I can actually visualize that yeah the the circus that came through with the elephants and you know right up harris avenue Uh it's like yeah i can see that yeah so with your i'm sorry i keep like steering (laughs) it back to jewelry but like that's what makes you you really want me to answer this question don't you (laughs) (laughs) not not specifically but you mentioned that one of the reasons you got into it was to have that independence and sort of be your own boss and we live in this age of the entrepreneur in a, a way that I feel like has never existed before that you can do your very specific little thing like this podcast or like I play accordion, you make jewelry, you can do your and you can do it your specific way and find the audience and find the people who like the way you do it in a way that would not have happened 150, 200 years ago. You would have had to have appealed to whoever was nearby. And maybe distant clients, but it was a much slower and different process. It may be slower, but I think people were probably a little more attentive because they had their resources were limited. Mm -hmm. You know, and I I think that I've always believed that there's a niche market for everyone, Mm -hmm. no matter what century you're in. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's... Back then, it was probably a whole different story, and now you're competing. Not so much competing, but it's saturated. You know, every industry is saturated to some degree, or art is saturated. So you really have to find a way to stand out. And, you know, they they tell you these days that it's about the story that you present, or, you know, what do you offer to your customers that's different, and Shit, I'm just me. You yeah. know, if you if you like what I offer, if you like me as a person, great. This is what I do. Yeah. And um, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And if people like it, then that's like a bonus. <laughs> that reminds me of a, one of my best friends in high school. And I always used to joke that if we ever proposed, 
we would just set the ring down in front of the person and be like, do you want this or not? <laughs> because by Take the Take it or leave yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> because by the time that you actually like want to marry someone, it should just be a yes. It, it shouldn't be a big elaborate thing. It should just be like, let's do this. Or even like, why do you even have to propose, put yeah. that ring out there? Because yeah. if you like someone, by golly gee, you know, you're hanging out already. You yeah. might as well just move in together, sleep in the same sleeping bag, you know. Uh-huh. uh-huh. So you you mentioned that people used to be more attentive. Do you, did you mean the consumers were more attentive or the producers? They're less distra- less distracted. The, back then. Yeah, I think so. By the the availability of goods, like it was there was there was less choice, so there was more focus. I think uh less choice and more focus. Because I mean, everything was so new. Uh-huh. Everything was fresh. You know, mm. now nowadays, which to to see something new and really different, it's it's striking. You know, it, it catches your eye. And yeah. um, so really trying to be inventive and create something that represents you is it's hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, where do artists draw their inspiration from? I'm pulling from past design work like buildings architecture um styles like Mm -hmm. clothing styles so or just god i love going into like the mount baker theater and looking at the ornate detail in there and imagining how i could connect a piece or utilize that um design somehow in my work and yeah it looks nothing like it but it's the idea that got the idea flowing. Right. So. Yeah, that, that idea of, of uh, I think, Amanda Palmer in her book, The Art of Asking, called it the blender. It's mm-hmm. like an artist takes in all these things and then puts them in a blender. Yeah. And some people set it to like a two or a three, like someone like George R. R. Martin, where you go, okay, Game of Thrones is basically War of the Roses plus Lord of the Rings right. plus never finishing any project. Right. Uh and you can kind of see where that comes from. Whereas like what you're describing where you're making jewelry that's inspired by this old roadhouse theater with all of the like fleur-de-lis and everything that the ceiling in there, I, I, I get distracted whenever I think about that place. It's amazing. Um, but it's, it sounds like your blender set a little bit higher. You know, I, I, I kind of, what I do is I like to look at, I get, I draw inspiration from, you know, past design on buildings, etc. But then, you know, I'm utilizing scraps in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of like looking at my materials or what I already have and looking at what's laying out. And I just kind of piecemeal stuff. And then, you know, either I like it or I don't and the functionality of it and how it, it the... I get. I don't know if you want to call it ergonomics or the, just the design of it and how it lays and wears and does it is it easy to wear. Those are kind of things that I'm looking at when I design. I I had not thought of it in a long time, but jewelry is very functional art because you can wear it place like right. it, you're interacting with it in a different way than a painting that you just put up on the wall. It's it's nostalgia. Mm-hmm. I mean, you probably have grown up and maybe your grandparents, if you, if you had, you know, if you were a lot, they were alive when you were, mm-hmm. um, 
you think about what they used to wear. Yeah. Those that sticks with you. It really sticks with you oh, yeah. and it has an influence on what you like probably now. Um, I mean, look at your closet behind you. Yeah. You're, you've got tweed. You've got great colors and textures uh-huh. in there. Jewelry's the same thing. Yeah. It really is the same thing to me. It it brings back memory. It, it's it's strong. And it really doesn't have anything to do with the material possession. It's about memory. And those feelings of people and relationships and experiences that you've had maybe as a kid or... Maybe, I don't know, maybe what you're drawing to include in your future. I, I Who knows? I think it, it you know, I, I'm such a, like, I'm going to a very nerdy place with this, but I, I think it's no accident that the, the object of power that everybody's fighting over in Lord of the Rings is a, a ring. ring. <laughs> because that is often one of the most, like, hereditary very true items, like, one my dad has like less than 10 specific items from his father things that were his father's that came over from the old country with their family all that kind of stuff and two of them are rings yeah uh very simple you know just like a it's like an onyx rock and a gold band or something like that but that idea of things getting power from having memories attached to them it is it is power that's a very strong word that means a lot. I, I really, it's, to me, it, like I have my grandmother's wedding ring. doesn't fit me, probably uh-huh. will never fit me, but I hold on to that and I pull that out and I look at that often. That woman had a great influence on my life and, you know, even my other grandmother who took trips to Arizona to get beautiful sterling silver and turquoise jewelry. It's, it's just those, it's inspiration for what you want to do with your life. I mean, there's just so much, so much to it that really sticks with you. Yeah. I, oh my goodness. That's like, a, <laughs> I think that's a perfect way to sort of take this on out. I, I don't really know how to follow it. I think you, I think you tied that up perfectly. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I had help. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about art and architecture and all the things. Uh, I'm still like kind of new to this, so I appreciate you coming up. You're only the second guest who's not someone I've been friends with for years. So that's really wonderful. Thank you. Well, you're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. Aw, thanks. That was my chat with Mary Jo Martini. I had so much fun talking to her. I know we kind of got off topic a lot, but we just sort of enjoyed each other's company. I've always enjoyed running into her on the stairs and chatting about what we're up to, and it was great to have her come up here and chat with me. She's one floor down, and uh, it's so fun sort of starting to feel a sense of community with my fellow artists in the building. At the end of this episode, she'll share her Instagram and stuff with you folks, so I hope you enjoyed that chat. Here's a thought. Are you familiar with the Dunning-Kruger hypothesis? This little nugget of psychological wisdom states that the less knowledgeable about a topic a person is, the more likely they are to hold forth upon it and claim broad mastery of said topic. We're all familiar with that most irksome of newly enlightened white kids who went to Bali and did yoga on the beach for, like, 
10 minutes or like whatever and it like totally opened up their like ana or third eye or the guy who likes to pop up in our facebook feeds or butt in when we're having a drink with friends to correct some mild issue of grammar or word usage we all know that guy and it seems like there are quite a few of them these days we live in the golden age of backseat drivers. One need only think of the manner in which the hive mind of the internet seems intent on running the show when it comes to cinematic productions or television. Actually, scratch that. This is not the golden age of backseat drivers. It is the golden age for backseat drivers. I think much of this has to do with the proliferation of parasocial relationships. If you're not familiar with that term, parasocial relationships are ones where one party is completely unaware that the other party exists. Think celebrity-slash-fan relationships. This results in one person, or persons, devoting a tremendous amount of thought, energy, and time to the relationship while the other works in the opposite direction. The sad part is, even when they are reciprocated with the best of intentions by a well-meaning celebrity who cultivates a relationship with their fans, something ever more present in the digital age, it is still startlingly one-sided. For all her talk of her relationship with her fans, Amanda Palmer has neither the energy nor time to have anything approaching a real connection with even an appreciable fraction of her fan base. That's not a dig at Palmer. I think she's done the best she could to provide worthwhile interactions to her loving fan base, but simply put, there's not enough Amanda to go around. This all leads to an environment where ordinary people have tremendous amounts of information about public figures, presidents, CEOs, celebrities, and so on. I first started thinking about this when my parents asked me how I would evaluate President Obama's presidency from a historical standpoint. This was after they'd asked me how I would evaluate Lincoln. The fact is that to pass judgment on Obama is almost impossible given that the outcomes of many of his choices are currently in flux and the final results have yet to be determined. Lincoln, on the other hand, has been dead for over 150 years. Most people who knew him personally died before anyone alive was even born. Okay, I'm not sure the math on that totally checks out, but I think the point stands. We can judge Lincoln pretty well knowing that there will be no shocking 11th hour revelations. Just look at the recent information that has come to light regarding Michael Jackson and consider how that now affects our views of his career as a whole. Nowadays, though, everyone is keen to comment on something a public figure did. Despite not being in the room where it happened, the internet has given voice and platform to an army of armchair historians, tacticians, and television writers, despite none of those folks having ever worked in those professions. Anyone who has ever watched a sporting event on television with relatives has encountered the armchair coaches of America. Folks who obsessively follow teams and their planned strategies and drafts and then have strong opinions regarding the validity of the choices the players and coaches make. And heaven forfend a professional referee on the field makes a bad call. I had a bit of personal experience with this phenomenon a few years back when I used to teach circus classes to young children. Tragedy struck in midwinter when one of my students died in a freak accident at home with his family. The less than credible minds at the local newspaper and radio affiliate proclaimed widely that he had died practicing a circus trick, which was simply not true. Even as multiple people, including local EMTs, tried to correct the story, all the larger news organizations picked up the false one and repeated the incorrect fact that he had been practicing a trick. Newspapers as far away as the Ukraine and France were calling me asking for comments. 
This exposed me to an uncomfortable amount of public scrutiny. I received dozens of email from people on three continents decrying me as a bad teacher of children who had not taken the time to observe proper safety procedures. Several offered to come to Bellingham and personally instruct me. Someone even offered to purchase a giant mattress to, quote, catch all of the kids that I dropped. Needless to say, I did not do well under all of this pressure, and my life took quite a downward spiral for a while after that. But that's another story. I don't share this uncomfortable personal anecdote to incur sympathy, but rather to illuminate my personal experiences with this regrettable tendency in our connected age. People with insufficient facts saying how they would have done it. If I have to watch one more supremely earnest YouTuber fix this or that cinematic battle, I will just lose it. And don't even get me started on people saying the writing is bad because the characters made bad choices. Don't people in real life make bad and or contradictory choices all the time? So what is the solution here? I doubt I am actually qualified to present anything definitive. I possess no degree and no other basis for my frustrations than my own meandering experiences, but I can share a thought, one which has kept my fingers away from my keyboard on many occasions when my ire toward film directors or disgraced mountaineers threatens to rear its ugly head. I like to ask myself, do I have any special knowledge or experience in this area? If the answer is no, then... That might give me pause. I need more coffee. Hokey fright. Have you heard about The Minimalists? This is a wee doc that I stumbled across on Netflix the other night. Someone I don't know left their account logged in on my parents' television while I was house-sitting for my parents, and all the recommendations were ones that I did not recognize. Instead of Jack Reacher-esques and family-friendly cartoons for the grandkids, it was all Marie Kondo and cooking shows and indie documentaries. In any case, that's how I found The Minimalists, and I had a pretty good time watching it. I'm including this as a hokey fright, though, because though I enjoyed and even found bits of the doc inspiring, I couldn't help but shake the feeling that something was off about it. I've lived what many, in the United States at least, would dub a minimalist lifestyle for most of my adult life. I spend months at a time living out of a couple of suitcases, crashing at empty flats all over the world, and making do with what I've got. I'm not quite a full-blown turtle person, but I've definitely felt like one from time to time. Suffice to say that the idea of making do with less and getting rid of extraneous possessions is one I'm familiar with and that I endorse. Furthermore, I find the idea of hoarding things away from other folks to be somewhat distasteful. I'm not talking about money, I'm talking about things. You know, we all know someone who owns way more books than they could ever possibly read, but they just like the feeling that they are there. Ditto for musical instruments. It breaks my heart that there are collectors of musical instruments who own dozens of ones they never play, while struggling artists the world over are desperate for something that just works. I'm in the weeds. This documentary is a bit off. The two leads of this film are a couple of guys who worked as bankers on Wall Street and found themselves f feeling something lacking in their emotional lives. They found an almost spiritual fulfillment in shedding the bulk of their possessions and living minimalistic lives, keeping only the objects that held the most utility or brought them the most joy. So far, so good. 
Much is made of the well-known curve of happiness relative to money. Up to a certain point, more money does bring more happiness, but after about $60,000 a year or so, it stops. More money actually brings less happiness. Again, I make no argument. I guess what bugs me about these guys and many of the rabid apostles of the new minimalist movement is that these are folks who started from something bigger and decided to downsize. Now that's all well and good, but they're preaching this into a world of people who would give a leg for the kind of relaxed comfort these dudes enjoy. Someone who has $100,000 in the bank deciding to move into a 400 square foot tiny home and shed most of their possessions is pretty much set for life. Of course they can afford to be a chill dude who writes books about minimalism and shedding material possessions. There's still a doorway back to the world they left. I think the most telling moment in the documentary comes near the beginning. We hear one of the lads talking about how he felt empty living his old life. He says, I used to have everything anyone could ever want. This voiceover occurs during shots of a current model MacBook and a recent iPhone being packed into his fancy suitcase satchel thing. I thought surely this was a comment on the cult of Mac. This is after the film has shown numerous clips of people queuing at Apple stores for new phones. But no. Instead, this is to show the monk-like simplicity of this dude's life. Har har. I'm sure these fellows are nice enough folks, and I don't want to harsh the excitement of anyone who is seeking a way to live a simpler life, more connected to meaningful things. I just found it dissonant to watch these guys talk about how simple and carefree their lives were as they rolled around on their chill longboards with $6,000 in tech in their satchels. I'm not saying it's good, but at least now you've heard about it. Song of the Week, Love and Hannah. This is from the Folk Songs of North America, the Alan Lomax collection that I've been learning some songs out of by reading the sheet music. And uh, this one just kind of caught my eye. It's, it's a song that I feel like a hundred years ago, no one would have ever questioned, you know, sort of it's this, this man and he's in love with this girl and he, he goes to church and then she, she kind of doesn't look at him. She kind of ignores him. And then she's like looking at other, other guys and he's like, Oh, Hannah, like, I, I wish that, that you'd come back to me. Cause you know, I love you or whatever. Uh, so the backstory on this song is apparently this is based off of a semi-fictional event from the life of Davy Crockett. He met a Quaker girl. He thought she was beautiful, and he bugged her and bugged her and bugged her until she said, yes, I'll marry you. And then he went off somewhere else for a while. And then when he came back, she had gone off and married another dude. And so he's super heartbroken about it. But I, I, I don't know that I feel that sorry for Davy Crockett. Um. The idea of hounding someone until they say yes and then being sad when they change their mind after you leave them alone. Anyway, it's still a beautiful song, and I hope you enjoy it. This is Love and Hannah. church last Sunday, my love, she passed me by, I knew her love was changing, 
by the roving of her eye. By the roving of her eye, by the roving of her eye, I knew her love was changing by the roving of her eye. My love is fair and proper, her hands are neat and small. And she is quite good-looking, and that's the best of all. She is quite good-looking, and that's the best of all. She is quite good-looking, and that's the best of all. Oh, Hannah, loving Hannah, come give to me your hand. You said if you ever married that I should be the man. You said if you ever married that I should be the man. Oh, Hannah, loving Hannah, come give me your hand. I'll go down by the waters when everyone's asleep. I'll think of loving Hannah and then sit down and weep. I'll think of loving Hannah, I'll think of Hannah true. I'll think of loving Hannah as I sit down to weep. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. Thank you folks so much for tuning in and staying with me as I sort of experiment with building this thing. I'm having the best time writing these essays and reviews and sharing these thoughts, and I hope that it can turn into a conversation a bit. If you folks have any questions for me or you'd like to send me something weird and hear me talk about it on the podcast, you can do that. Uh, I have an address. You can send things to strangely 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. I look forward to hearing from you. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is produced at Sonic Suitcase Studios in fairly fine Fairweather, Fairhaven, Washington. Sonic Suitcase Studios is located in the Morgan Block building, part of the People's Land Trust. This podcast is made possible by my incredible supporters on Patreon. Check out patreon.com strangely to find out how you can help me make more of whatever this is. I'll see you all next week. Where can people see your stuff? Do you have like an Instagram or a website? Oh, I've got it all. Uh-huh. Let me tell you. Okay. I'm on Instagram. Uh, my business name is Martini Metalcraft. I'm on Facebook, uh, Vimeo. I have a couple of videos. They're pretty hysterical. You should go watch them because you're looking at me talking. Um, YouTube, you name it, I'm on. Oh, I have a website, martinimetalcraft.com too as well. 
Well, I will send everybody to all those things. Wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production.